left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. If money was all taken care of and you had the time to do whatever it is that you wanted to do, what is that one thing that you would do? And that would be an indication of something to do that you could supplement your income with. I'm excited to announce a new edition of the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast called the Infielder Spotlight. You will see it every Wednesday starting May 18th in this feed with host Chad Ackerman. Chad, tell us about the new podcast. Thanks, Jim. So I had this idea in the shower because that's where all good ideas come to me that uh, I've always found podcasts interesting to listen to people's stories. And they were most intriguing when they talk about where they came from, what they went through, how they got into passive investing, because I've found it very relatable typically to my own journey. And it gave me confidence because a lot of their stories sounded like my own. So I usually would learn something from their journeys and felt like I could be successful as well. Therefore, I thought it would be great to interview people from our community and ask them to share their stories also. That sounds fantastic, Chad. So everyone, look for Chad in the Infielder Spotlight podcast beginning Wednesday, May 18th. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy, not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place. So you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Paul Shannon from Red Hawk Real Estate, and you're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm pleased today to have Derek Clifford with us. He's an investor in single and multifamily real estate who successfully retired himself from his full-time W-2 job by growing and scaling his real estate portfolio. He's the host of the Elevate Your Equity podcast and is the author of Part-Time Real Estate Investing for Full-Time Professionals. And although that doesn't apply to him anymore because he retired himself, which, of course, I love the wording of that. Derek, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Jim, it is an honor to be here. Thank you for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure. And the first thing we do on this podcast, we'd like to hear a little bit about your journey. How do you get to where you are? What's your financial journey? And also, you're on a perpetual journey, it sounds like. So we'd like (laughs) to hear about that as well. (laughs) Absolutely. So 
I'll try to keep it as brief as I can, but I started out investing in real estate like most people do, completely on accident, right? No, actually, we did start completely on accident, but that is how we ended up uh, getting our portfolio started because my wife, who was living in Washington State back in 2007 or so, she decided to purchase a condo about a month before the real estate market crash in 2008 with the mortgage meltdown. And so she had bought a condo for like $250,000 or something in Washington State. Come to find out like three or four months later, it was worth 90000 Now, by the time she had graduated school about four years later, right, she was ready to move on to a residency, but the condo was underwater by about 70 grand or something more like that. So we really didn't have any options because at the time we were kind of starving students or we were just graduated from school and we're trying to get our whole financial lives and our personal lives started. And we couldn't afford to write the $70,000 difference, right, to cover that difference between what someone would be willing to pay and what our mortgage was currently outstanding. So the only option that we could go with was to rent out the condo. And when we rented out the condo, we started collecting cash flow and we're making our drive from Washington State down to California, which is where we both ended up working for a little while after Washington. We noticed that we were getting this mailbox money coming in every month. Like we were paying our mortgage, we were paying the HOA, we were paying all the water bills and everything. And we still had this excess cash flow. And at the time, I was really big in Dave Ramsey in paying down debt and trying to like get to the point where you can live off of 4% of your nest egg savings in stocks, right? And realized that it was going to take me 25 or 30 years to get to the goal that I needed to get to in order to have the same lifestyle that I was having then at the time, including raises and everything else in my W-2. So when we started getting this mailbox money, the gears started turning in my head, right? And it's like, man, if we did this on accident, imagine what we could do if we did it on purpose out of design. So that's what we ended up doing. We started like going deep into bigger pockets and spent years in analysis paralysis trying to figure out what the easiest way to hit a home run right out of the gate was. And obviously learned some lessons there and got some single families eventually, made some mistakes and started to shift my mindset from hitting it out of the park from the first one to learning, knowing this is a lifelong learning, this is a lifelong journey that would be going on. And so once we made that shift, we started buying up stuff like crazy. And like you mentioned in the bio, we bought like 14 or 16 units or something in our first eight months when we really started hitting the road and hitting it hard. And then from there, eventually went into multifamily, started getting mentors, did this full time while working a job for five years. And then eventually last September was able to leave my full time project management job at a utilities company building gas pipeline and electric infrastructure on construction projects. So that's a little bit about my background. Hopefully it's not too long. No, that was great. That was super interesting. So accidental landlord, that's funny. That's the way I started as well. And it was also about the same time, right? 2008, we couldn't sell our house. We built a new one, became a landlord, hated it. But then the check started rolling in and I thought, hmm, this isn't so bad. Can you talk about some of the mistakes you made? You mentioned along the way you made mistakes and I made plenty of them as well. And that's how I kind of ended up becoming a passive investor because I realized I just wasn't an asset manager or a property manager. And I needed to get out of that business and get into something that I could figure out and was good at. So what were some of the mistakes that you made early on? Yeah, you know, similar to your experience there, Jim, we have a lot in common there. I thought that I could do it all myself. This is a classic mistake, right? When you buy a property in your local market, you figure that you can place the tenants, you can do the repairs, you can collect rent, you can do all of that. And while it was true, you can do all of it. For me, what was more true is that I did it very poorly. <laughs> and what ended up happening was we ended up getting our first couple of tenants in there and we charged way too much for rent. 
So we placed tenants that couldn't afford it. So they only, as you might imagine, they only paid for three or four months. And then we had to do a cash for keys arrangement, basically giving them back all the money that they had paid us to get them out, right? Because this is in California where the tenant landlord laws are very much slanted towards the tenant. And then the other thing that we did was we got the next tenant in there. And this one was actually like purposefully trying to hurt us. They took us to court. We went through the whole eviction process and it took us six months to get them out. So that whole time we're paying the mortgage without any income coming in and with people that aren't happy with us inside the property, most likely damaging it. So once I realized that just like you, I had the aha moment that it's like, oh my gosh, I need to start outsourcing some of these things, right? So that was the number one mistake was not relying on a team. That's number one. Even if you think you can't afford to do a property manager on it, don't buy it. That's my number one advice for people starting off in single family. And the second thing that I learned was analysis paralysis. I kind of touched on this before. Once I was able to shift my mindset from just crushing it and making a million bucks off the first deal to accepting that I don't know what I don't know and that it's going to be a journey and it's going to be a long-term type of investment where we're going to be reinvesting gains back into the business, that's when I was actually able to take action because I took the pressure off of myself to get something right away, to maximize the hard-earned money that we earn as active income professionals, right? To convert it into something that's more of a passive or even an active investment elsewhere in real estate. So I think those two things really kind of helped me get started, those mistakes. And now you're doing syndications, multifamily syndications. Talk about the transition from doing your own single family homes, and then presumably you did some small multis, and then you realized, hmm, maybe I can upscale and get this larger. So talk about that and how you got to, now you're a syndicator doing multifamily properties. Yeah. You know, Jim, I really like to think about it in terms of like a funnel. With the amount of people that are interested in real estate investing, only a select few of those actually end up working in it or actually end up doing something in it, whether it's passive or active. So I had all these single family homes. And what happened to me was once I got to the point where I'm like, oh my gosh, like I'm out of loans. Because once you get to 10 loans on single family homes, Fannie Mae doesn't allow you to take on any more. So that means that you'd have to start going into expensive business debt anyway, which is like more like commercial products where you can basically refinance all of your homes into like a commercial product and then you can start buying houses again. But I figure, you know what, like for all the effort that I'm putting in to rehab a property, have a property manager there, have one tenant in there, have do the lawn maintenance and do all that stuff, right? To manage that tenant. Why don't I just do multifamily? Because then you buy one property and the closing process to do due diligence, all that stuff is the same for each time. So I saw scale there. And I'm sure you get this a lot from some of the people who walk the same journey. But I saw that and I realized that, okay, from the funnel, I'm interested in real estate. I executed on real estate in the single family side. The next thing is multifamily, right? And in multifamily, I started with doing JVs. I wanted to make the mistakes myself. In the end, I always knew I was going to run out of money. But when I saw the light about what syndication can do and how you can partner with other people with their capital to bring it to the table, I knew right away that as I'm walking down this funnel, I got more and more interested in real estate and I got myself more convinced to become more of an active real estate investor as a syndicator. Because Jim, I was faced with the choice when I was working a W-2 job once I hit those 10 loans. I'm like, okay, so do I keep doing single families? Do I go active into multifamily or do I go passive into multifamily, right? Because I want to continue moving into the real estate realm and get more and more assets. And so I was faced at that fork in the road and I was like, okay, I think that I love this more than working my W-2 job. 
and I want the scale. So I ended up going with uh, syndications on the active side. And so that's kind of the path that I walked when I had that decision point. And then leaving the job was also another decision point, which we can talk about later if you'd like. But there was definitely some financial considerations there, some lifestyle considerations, and some relationship considerations that we had to make before making that jump. I would love to talk about that because we have a lot of our community who is looking to get out of the W-2. But before we do that, you mentioned JV, so joint venture. Can you explain why you did joint ventures What's the difference between that and a syndication? And why are you doing syndications now and not joint ventures anymore? Yeah, so great question too. With joint ventures, these are structures in which you buy property just like you would buy a house. Like let's say it's you and your wife that end up buying a home together. You're 50-50 on it depending on how you take title, right? But either way, you can consider that a joint venture. Or you can say, well, hey, maybe you and your brother or and a friend or coworker, the three of you can come up with a down payment on a house in your neighborhood in Ohio, right? And you can just go ahead and buy that property as third, 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 right? In a joint venture, all of the investors that owns the ownership of the building, they all have a joint responsibility or they have active involvement that needs to be there, right? So when you do a joint venture, all three of you have to be actively participating in the business or in the operations of the business. That's the way a joint venture works. Even if someone brings all the capital and someone brings the sweat equity, the assumption is so that you're not creating a security, which I'm going to get into soon, is that all of the people that are in that venture or in the ownership team of that, that have some sort of membership in it, whether it's an LLC that takes title and then people are owners in the LLC, all of those investors have to be actively involved in a syndication. It's different because in a syndication, you have two classes of investors. You have passive investors and active investors. And the passive investors, they get equity, but they have no voting rights. And that's all legally outlined as long as the syndicator is following the rules of how to build these syndications, right? Which they should when they give you PPMs and you sign all that documentation, right? That's what all that is about. And so you have two classes of investors and syndications, one that make all the decisions and still hold equity and maybe even earn free equity for that to do those things. And then you have the limited partners, which give the cash and they earn equity, but they have no voting rights. So you have this exchange, right? And when I was doing JVs at the beginning, I wanted everyone to be active because it was also all of my capital coming in. Like it was a lot of my own capital and all the people that I was working with, they understood that we were all learning together and we were willing to take that risk. I wanted to do that first, Jim, before I started taking on other people's money, because there are so many people out there that will accept people's money and then use that to learn the business. That doesn't sit well with me. That does not sound like a secure way to handle other investors' money. So I much rather would not gamble, but play with my own money first, right? To learn how the business works, get my systems honed and sharpened. And then once we have that down and we're ready to accept other people's money to start scaling up with that experience, that's how that led to that. I think that's for passive investors, that's a great thing to hear. We talk a lot about when someone changes asset classes, a syndicator is now doing self-storage rather than multifamily. I don't want to be their guinea pig, right? I don't want to be their test case. So I would much prefer someone go do the joint venture thing for a while, come back to me and say, okay, we've made all the mistakes on our own dime. Now we're going to go make you some money. So I appreciate that. I would like to get back to the leaving the W-2. In our community, we call it ditch the W-2 and a bunch of other things. You call it retiring yourself, which I thought was fantastic. So you mentioned there was a, a lot of things you had to consider. And I think most people 
what they mainly consider is I need to make sure I have more income than I do expenses. And then, oh crap, what do I do about health insurance? So it seems like there might be some other things you considered. And I'd like you to talk about that. Yeah. So I get this question so much. And maybe I should start to you by explaining a little bit about what our lifestyle is like right now, because that feeds into this discussion. My wife and I are currently Airbnb nomads. So Jim, we just basically travel the country. We've been doing this for almost a year now. And there's really no end in sight for us, at least until we get back from Europe in the summer this year. So we're traveling around the world and we're living for much less than what we had when we were working in the California Bay Area. So this feeds into the discussion, okay? What happened with us and when we realized that it was time for us to exit the W-2 and retire yourself is, first of all, the first prerequisite is you've got to have something that you want to step into while when you exit. Because if you just want to exit to exit and you have passive income, what are you going to do with your time, right? Like you've got to find something to do. If you're at a point where you have all these passive investments and your passive income is starting to exceed your active income, then you have the luxury of being able to go ahead and escape the job and then just say, well, I'll figure it out. But most of us aren't there. When you start thinking about it, you crave it more and more. And so if you're kind of approaching that level, as long as you have some sort of marketable interest that you've built up as a side hustle while you're working your job, that you know you can hit the ground running and take full advantage of the time that you were spending in your full-time job on this side hustle to be able to leverage that and create income, I think that that's the number one factor. If you have a cash buffer of like a year, right, then do it. If you have a skill that you know is marketable and if you put more time into it or more energy or more focus and you know you'll be able to scale it up on yourself, I always bet would bet on yourself rather than having an employer take care of you. So the main mind shift for me is yes, there's income involved, right? You have to make sure you're covering your expenses. But I would say if you have a cash reservoir of about a year of your expenses, you owe it to yourself, no matter where you are, to try it. And that year-long calculation is dependent on what your expenses are. And so when I quit the W-2 and we went full on mobile, Jim, our expenses in the Bay Area was like 10 grand a month just to live there because it's the California Bay Area. That's the way it is out there. But when we're traveling, our total nut is somewhere around $5,000 a month. And we're living nicely across the US. And I think you can understand and respect that. Because you know, if I was to get a nice Airbnb in Columbus or out in Cincinnati or something, that would be $3,000 a month, right? And then you have $2,000 a month for your expenses, healthcare, all of that stuff, right? So you got to think about like what lifestyle you're going to step into. If it's going to be currently where you are, that's easier to predict. So as long as you have a one-year cash runway to do this, and you have a marketable skill that you believe in yourself and you're passionate enough to jump into, you owe it to yourself to go ahead and jump into it. Because, Jim, what is the worst thing that could happen after that year when you run out of cash? Yeah, you have to go back, right? Go back to work. So what's the big deal, right? Like, that's how we're thinking about this right now is like, you owe it to yourself to give yourself a chance to light a fire under your butt to live off of your own metal and see if you can make something work. See if you can build something. Because if you can build something in that year, you will never have to work again, right? Or you're on your way to never having to work again. So that's just my advice to those who are thinking about leaving the W-2. Have faith in yourself, invest in your mindset, work through limiting beliefs. All of that stuff is there, but consider thinking about it from a different perspective. That is an interesting perspective. I guess I would say what happens if a lot of our community, they're a little bit older, maybe they're in their late 40s, early 50s, and they've worked for 25 years, and maybe they don't have a marketable skill. They're just ready to do something different. Maybe it's 
a part-time job, but they have the cash flow now. So would it be different for somebody like that? Like I don't have a marketable skill necessarily. I'm just a podcast host and an investor. So that's what I'm doing with my time now. But what else is there if you're not thinking, hey, I'm going to go create something or do something. You just want to lessen the hours you put in working for somebody else. Yeah, I think that what you're doing, it's a very feasible thing. Having a part-time job that at least covers the medical bills or doing something like that is great. But I guess from my perspective, everyone has a marketable skill. Everyone can do it. Everyone has something. It's just a matter of whether you're that type of person. If you want to step into something that you're passionate about, everyone's got a hobby, right? And so you could step into that hobby somehow. There's so many resources out there. And it feels like even for some of the older audience, I would encourage people to ask the question, if money was all taken care of and you had the time to do whatever it is that you wanted to do, what is that one thing that you would do? And that would be an indication of something to do that you could supplement your income with. It could be consulting. Like you could just do a consulting with people. You can tap into your network and say, hey, you know, I'm an expert in this space. I would love to consult there. You could give back. You could start volunteering with your time and you'll meet people there. You could build a nonprofit. There's just a ton of things that you can do with your time. It's just a matter of finding out what it is that you're in alignment with. But I agree. I think there's this interplay here though, Jim, where for some people who just want to work and they just want to be passive, then eventually you can get to a point where your monthly expenses start to approach your W-2 or start to approach all of your income starts to approach your monthly expenses. If you have a cash reservoir in addition to that, you know that a few properties are starting to become full cycle. That's when you can start to really think about planning your exit, right? Because those full cycle moments, depending on how much income you have coming in, you can kind of play accountant with yourself and become a real estate professional and start to claim some of the taxes on cost segs when you start doing new properties. So it's a call with your accountant, with your wife, with your spouse, just to make sure that whatever lifestyle you're about to step into, you can sustain yourself with. But I always think that people have marketable skills. And even when they do retire, and if they look to retire early, what are you going to do? That's the one thing that I ask the audience is, whatever it is that you decide to do, maybe make it something that you could make some income in doing on the side. Yeah. And I think that's something that I'm not sure everyone's thinking about. Because the goal is, maybe I don't want to be committed to this job, or I want to reduce the hours where I don't want to work for somebody else anymore at all, but you're not really thinking, okay, what am I going to do next, right? Now you have the money, maybe you maybe have enough passive income to cover your bills, but yeah, what are you going to do? And I think that's something that people need to think about. And I've heard you talk about the three degrees of freedom. Can you tell us what those three degrees are and what it all means? I know some of it was what you've been talking about, but kind of just sum that up for us. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for giving me the space to be able to do this because this is another thing I meant to bring into this conversation about freedom, right? For your passive investors. One way to start looking at the freedom that you're going to be enabling through passive investing is maybe you break it up into three degrees. And I like the term degree of freedom because every time you unlock a degree of freedom, it allows you to move in that space however you want to. And then the next degree of freedom that you unlock then exponentially opens up more possibilities, right? And then the third one means that you're basically, you can do anything you want. And the three degrees are time, location, and financial. And when I started on my journey, the very first thing that I did was I worked on location freedom first. That was my very first one. And I did that even while I was working a full-time job, thanks to COVID. I mean, a lot of people are able to work remotely now. 
But once I had that itch of that locational freedom where I was working everywhere and traveling around, I started to sense or feel that I needed the time freedom. And so that's when I made the W-2 exit. And at the same time, we started crunching our expenses down where we were living and that created financial freedom. So in stages, we were able to create these three degrees, right? The first one, location freedom, we're able to travel throughout California, whatever, you know, and go whenever we want to, which was awesome. And then we created time freedom in the fact that I was leaving my job, but still working in the house in California. And then my wife and I realized, well, why don't we just start traveling and living for cheaper than we can in the Bay Area? And that created financial freedom because now we can live sustainably anywhere we want to live off of the income from our joint ventures and our syndications. Hey, left fielders, this is Julian McClurkin. When I'm not on the court with the Harlem Globetrotters, I'm the chief storyteller for TribeVest. Now, you might be thinking, why would TribeVest hire a Globetrotter? Well, through my travels around the world, I've met so many amazing people and heard their incredible stories. And it's no different at TribeVest. My job is to share the stories of people investing together as a group, as a tribe. TribeVest allows groups to pool their capital, set up their LLCs and bank accounts, help with operating agreements, funding rounds, and so much more. Whether you're investing with other dads from your kid's preschool class or getting into real estate syndications with people around the country like LFI infielder Brian Pawnell, TribeVest helps them all make it happen. If you want to hear more about stories about TribeVest's customers, just check out TribeVest's YouTube channel. And if you're already ready to start investing as a group, head on over to TribeVest.com today. So, Let's get back into the syndications then. You're looking at smaller apartment complexes, I think, than the typical syndication. And I've always kind of thought that I on my own or an investor on my own, you can buy a, up to a 25 or 30 unit and handle that on your own. Although I didn't handle mine very well, but people can. And then if you're a syndicator, you probably want 100, 200 units. So there might be an opportunity in that 40 to 100 unit space where there's not as much competition. Is that kind of why you're targeting that? Are there other reasons? Are the cap rates better for the smaller deals? Are there less competition? Talk about your strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for bringing this up. And that's 100% true. Everything that you're mentioning, I'm totally jiving with. When you work in the 24 to 48 or 64 unit space, you're not dealing with people that have hedge funds behind them or huge 1031 money or large down payments. You're working with less sophisticated owners and operators that are operating the property. The opportunity for you to increase NOI is there because you're just dealing with less professional owners. They're usually mom and pop operations. Now, what we like to do, Jim, especially in Indianapolis, which is one of our primary markets, is we like to buy properties right next to each other, 24 units, 36 units, another 18 or 20 or 22 units, right? And you might know why we're doing this, right? Because when we have our property management team come in, we basically treat all the units the same. We rehab them the same way. We put in the same flooring, the same fixtures, at least over time. Like as we get these properties and the tenants leave, we go in and we upgrade everything to be the same standard. That would allow us to rebrand the entire portfolio of right next to each other as a single property. And that is when you can go from having the mom and pop operators or owners to now consolidating operations. And so now you're getting the attention of some of the bigger boys when you're trying to exit. That opens us up to a whole new pool of buyers. 
So we're able to attract more people. And if we absolutely wanted to, we can split them back up again and keep them separate and sell them one off if we need to. So we really like that approach just because it's easier to buy properties. They're at a lower rate and they have more upside potential that way. And how do you find, like what happens if there's one property in between you and you have four of the main properties? Because I love the idea of packaging that and sell. It's just the same as what a syndicator does, right? That has a 200 unit complex and they make it all nice and make it beautiful and they package it and sell it to an institutional investor who's just going to cash flow it like a bond almost. So you're doing the same thing. You're taking all these smaller ones, packaging them up and saying, hey, here, it's a larger one. Now you're going to give it to a, a larger syndicator who does larger properties and then they can carry out their plan. So how do you negotiate that to find those properties next to each other? And then you're taking a leap, right? If you're buying three properties and there's one fourth one, and the old guy or gal won't sell, what happens then? <laughs> yeah, no, that does happen. The good news is that we're in Indiana for the long haul. And because of this market right now, a lot of people are looking to sell. So the simple method for us is to basically use Google Maps and start looking around the area where the apartments are and look up who the owners are and start to just, I don't want to say harass them, but we, <laughs> we reach out to them and we try to make sure that they understand that someone is interested in buying the property. The other thing that we do too is we have plenty of brokers that we work with and we tell them what our strategy is. So when we start setting up a cluster of apartment buildings to buy in a certain sub-market of a metropolitan area, they know that we are going to be a pretty competitive offer in this space because our underwriting is going to assume that we're going to combine operations and do that. So we'll do this at staggered points in time. And usually with all of our operations, we hold them for at least three to five years. So if we acquired on year zero, the first property, we're always looking from year zero to year two. And then obviously year three, we're looking to exit. So if that last acquisition comes in, that gives us a little bit of time to start to reposition it. Or maybe we'll even sell it six months before, like after we buy it, just because we can leave meat on the bone for the next investor as well. Because that's always an important thing is to make sure that when you sell something, there's an upside that you can have as a proven rental increase, right? Or proven type of value add that just needs to be expanded with the new operational team. So that's what we like to do. I might be getting in the weeds here, but I got to ask this question. because so I've seen apartment complexes and there's five apartment complexes right next to each other. And four of them were built by the same builder around the same time. And they all look kind of similar, but there's that one in the middle that looks totally different. All the other ones are two bedrooms and this is one bedrooms with balconies. The other ones don't have balconies. Does that matter? Can you still consolidate them all into one portfolio? Yeah, of course. I mean, I don't see why you couldn't. Um, really, what I consider as a consolidation of a portfolio is having the same management team and having the same rehab standards. So sometimes it does get tricky where every once in a while, like in, in Ohio and, and also in Indiana, you'll have fantastic properties on one side of the street and then the other side of the street or the next street over. It's not quite the same. So there are exceptions to that. But as long as you're using the same management team, and you're using the same type of rehab standards and the same like the same paint, the same vanities, the same upgrades, all that stuff, and you keep it all the same, and the upside potential is there, you could basically call it the same property if you wanted to. Okay. And you've mentioned a couple times property managers. And in my limited experience as an active investor, that was the hardest thing to find was a quality property manager. I went through too many property managers, could never find, and that's really why I got out of the active business. So how do you find property managers? How do you vet property managers? How do you evaluate them while they're in place? And how do you communicate that to your investors? Is that something they ask about? Is that an important thing to investors to know that you have that part handled? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Property managers is our lifeblood. Like if you have a great property manager and a terrible property, 
I would rather have that than vice versa, having a great property and a terrible property manager. So let me just get that lined out straight away. Now, the best way to find property managements is basically to talk with other investors in the area because you're leveraging their experience and their expertise. Sometimes they keep it close to the chest, but those are people that maybe you don't want to build strategic relationships with anyway. And I find that some of the best people in the business, whether they're investors or contractors or property managers, they tend to stay in the same realm. So like a really good property manager will not bring on a crappy contractor to do their work, right? So these referrals are really powerful. So if you have a really good connection that's doing some amazing stuff, ask them for a referral, ask them for referrals. And that's how we keep our Rolodex up to date on property managers, right? The other thing that I was going to do is you have to think about a property manager's incentive. That's the main thing. So I'm going to tell you something that's pretty interesting that I'm not sure many syndicators do, but it's one way to keep property managers in the loop. What I do, Jim, is let's say I have two properties. I have property A, property B. They don't necessarily have to be next to each other, but they're on different parts of the same market. On property A, I will hire property manager Y as the property manager, and then I will bring on another property manager, property manager Z, in the ownership team. Okay, that's on property A. I think you probably know where I'm going with this on property B, but on property B, it's vice versa. I have the property manager Y in the ownership team and property manager Z running the property management. That way they know that I'm connected with everything here and they're checking each other. So having a property manager in the market, an ownership team to oversee what a property manager is doing and they know that it's vice versa is a great way to keep them looped in. Obviously there are problems, sometimes fallouts happen, right? Or you have issues or conflicts, but that's why you've got to channel your communication well so that you're having all the internal team communication taking place in one area. And then that communication gets related to the property manager just so that you're not having the two property managers always in a, like a fight state. You have a management team that can create a message that distills out to the PM. But the good news is, is that it goes back and forth. So the ownership team acts together with the property managers knowing that each other are involved. And you're trying to remove the emotions. You're trying to manage all of those personal things that happen, but they're incentivized to work together. So that's kind of a ninja technique that I've been using pretty well in Indianapolis. It's been great. That's interesting. So I'm a passive investor. How do I evaluate the property manager when I'm looking at a deal or I'm looking to invest with a new sponsor and I want to invest with you? How do I know that you're picking the great property managers? What questions can a passive investor ask the syndicator to get at the quality of the property manager? Yeah, I think what it comes down to is the KPIs that the asset manager or the sponsor is looking to track that will be fed down to the property manager. So you basically ask questions related to those KPIs. In our industry, it's generally turnover time. That's one. NOI, that's two. And then number three is costs or construction costs. So those are kind of the three major KPIs. Like there's others that we track as well. But you want to ask questions that are about vacancy. So you'd say, what is your average vacancy time for units that you currently have? That would be something that us as a sponsor would ask a potential PM. We'd also ask, how much do typical turns cost or how much have you been able to get turns done for considering there's carpet in there? It's a thousand square foot place. We want a, a typical turn. Tell us what that's about and what that comprises. And then the net operating income. You want to ask them, what have you seen works from a marketing perspective to get the maximum amount of rent that you can for these units? 
And what have you done to help save owners money on expenses? And so you get some really interesting responses, right? You get responses like, oh, well, we helped implement a ratioed rub system that's based on per head count, or we've installed dog parks before, and then also installing hardwood flooring and like dog proofing all the units so that you can have access to a better clientele because there's no other places that accept dogs in this area. Great insights like that really gives you the confidence that you as a passive investor are asking the property manager that the syndicator selected that you guys are both asking the same questions or that they know what they're doing. So again, I would hang around those KPIs because when the rubber hits the road, that's really what matters is those KPIs. Also, character is important too. Knowing that the person that you're working with is going to follow through with what they're saying, that's important as well. But hopefully that's something that you vet out straight out of the gate and you just like, once you see a red flag, it's like, no, no, thank you. So yeah. Real quick, KPI and RUB, what are those? Yeah, so KPI is called a key performance indicator. If you had to like map out the performance of the real estate asset when you're doing asset management, you want to check the health. Like, how have your vacancies been trending? Are you getting more vacancies like month to month or are you getting less? And how is your trending? Like, how are you trending on your net operating income? So it's basically those performance indicators put into a single number so you can track it over time and kind of benchline it. And then the other one was rubs, right? That's called a ratio utility billing system. What that means is, let's say that you have 100 units in a property and your water bill is $10,000 a month or something or $5,000 a month. Well, you can bill back that $5,000 a month to the tenants because they're the ones that are using it. And there's usually often one meter in the Midwest. It's very expensive to submeter all the water and sewer in all the units. So you have this huge $5,000 bill that you're not responsible for because the tenants have been using it. So how do you break up that bill? Who owes what? Sometimes there's flat fees per unit, but our property manager has done a great job at doing it per head or doing it per unit size or whatever the legal mandates recommend. Okay. Now, this next question is going to seem like it's way out from left field, but that's appropriate for this podcast. I watched a webinar that you did that I am shocked actually that I watched it because the topic is not very exciting. I think I know where you're going. (laughs) We had my accountant come on and talk about K-1s and I thought that was the most boring thing ever, but it was also the most informative thing ever. So it was something that I had to do. So I watched your email organization webinar and I was fascinated and I haven't implemented everything, but my Google inbox looks completely different. So in just a couple of minutes, can you talk about how did you even figure out that was a thing? Why are you presenting on it? And why does it sound so boring, but it is so good once you do it? (laughs) Well, thank you, Jim. I'm so glad that you feel that way. Okay, real quick. Most people out there, when they hear email inbox, like there's these feelings of dread of like, oh my God, like it's this black hole where... You look on your phone and there's like a thousand unread emails on that bubble, like a little envelope. And then there's like a thousand like in that red bubble. I decided to start using my inbox as a task list and as a priority manager for me. For you listeners out there, there are tools out there where you can have emails come in and pre-sorted to fall into categories that you want them to go into. And you can use your email inbox as like something to do, like it's a task list. If there's an email that comes in that's important to you and you can't do it right away, you can star it. And depending on how you configure your email inbox, you can have it go up to the top of the screen. So you're looking at it every single time you open up your inbox. Meanwhile, all the other emails that are coming in that you probably won't read or need to read, it's just clutter. You can have a rule for them so that when they come in, they're marked as red and they go to the bottom. 
And the reason we do that rather than just unsubscribing and deleting is you want to use your inbox as a tool. Because what if there was something that you wanted reference on, or let's say that there was a deal in Louisville or something that you wanted to look up. Well, guess what? You can go to your email inbox and you can search for Louisville on some of those red emails and then it will pop up. Or if you have a question about a resource or a person or something, you still have all of those old resources that are red that are basically such a low priority for you that they're not worth you reading, but they're worth you storing because you may need that information later. And I can't tell you, Jim, how freeing it is to have the inbox at zero every day for the last 10 years that I've been doing this, right? And it's such a great philosophy shift of you going to look at your inbox and your inbox is actually your task list. So you know what you need to do. And then everything else that comes in is maybe a new email here and there, but everything else is kind of, you've already made the decision ahead of time to not look at it. And that saves you everything. So like, why can't you do that? Why can't you outsource your decision-making right now and pre-decide that you don't need to see every email from Groupon? or every email from Zillow, or every email from whoever, from the Pampered Chef, or whatever, right? Whatever magazine. Like, if you need them, they're there for you. You can go in and search for it. But having that philosophy has just saved me so much time. And I will say that I learned this through project management, doing it for many, many years. We had to do this in order to keep everything all straight. I did this on my professional life for many years, and then I decided to bring it into the personal life, and it was a total game changer. Like, my efficiency went way up. And my attitude towards email and responding to people and that I would say has created opportunity within itself because I've been able to respond to people quicker, keep myself more organized and save time from doing administrative stuff to focusing on the real things that matter. Yeah, it's great. I got to email inbox zero one day last week and I think I poured myself an extra little <laughs> bourbon to celebrate because I was, so, <laughs> I was so proud of myself. So I appreciate that. And hopefully we can get a link to that presentation it was from Dennis Shapiro. I know you did it with him. I'd like to uh, put that in the show notes because it was phenomenal. The last question I always ask is, what is a great podcast that you listen to? And you cannot use Elevate Your Equity. That will be in the show notes anyway. You're going to have to pick a different one. Dang. All right. Well, there's a few. I don't know how many of the investors or the listeners out there are into cryptocurrency, but I loved Bankless. Just really enjoyed that podcast philosophy and just the news and kind of the raw information that they provide around the blockchain world. But if I had to go with one, it would probably be the Tim Ferriss podcast, the Tim Ferriss show. And the reason for that is he brings on such incredible guests that touch on topics that you never knew you needed to know about. That's what's so cool about it. It's that discovery. It's like what's coming up next. And he always brings on very powerful and really impactful speakers. And so I recommend those two. That's great. So if listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah. So the easiest way is to just go to our website. There's a lot of options there. You can basically get our ebook on the seven ways that commercial real estate protects and grows your wealth over time, or our syndication brochure basically walks you through how a syndication works from tip to tail with live examples and stuff inside of it. And then we're on social media. We're on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. We're all over the place. And if you really want to talk with me directly, I highly prefer email because we'll be traveling a lot. And you can do that just by emailing me at Derek, that's D-E-R-E-K, at Elevate Equity, that's all one word, dot O-R-G, not dot com, dot O-R-G. Okay. And is that your website as well, ElevateEquity.org? Yes, sir. It is. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. I really appreciate you being on the show. Yeah. Thank you, Jim. This has been a blast. Thanks for having me on. 
This episode is brought to you by MAG Capital Partners, a leading investment firm specializing in single-tenant industrial real estate with triple-net leases. MAG invests in properties with established tenants in manufacturing, cold storage, and distribution. These income investments are designed for strong, tax-advantaged cash flow from day one and have historically generated above-market returns. With approximately $500 million of real estate acquisitions, MAG Capital Partners has extensive experience and a history of profitable exits. To learn more about MAG Capital Partners, visit www.magcp.com. That was a very interesting conversation with Derek. Uh, A couple of things that I really, really liked was he talked about learning first instead of always going for the home runs, always going for the big deals, the big wins. Once he decided he wanted to start learning and was going for smaller deals or singles and doubles, he was a lot more effective. And that probably allowed him to get some home runs because he wasn't swinging for the fences anymore. He was just trying to learn. And I think that's a big help. I also like that he's doing the joint venture before syndications, right? So what we talk about, you don't want to be somebody's guinea pig. So he's doing his test himself. He's his own guinea pig. And then once he was ready and he'd done a few joint ventures and he figured out all the processes, then he goes and collects money from others. So I think that's a really great way to do that. I also enjoyed how he talked about once your money is all taken care of, what is the one thing you would want to do? And I think we need to think about that when we're trying to get away from the W-2 or reduce work hours or anything is, okay, what would you do if you had all your money taken care of? What do you want to do and what would you do? And I think those are valuable things to think about. I think a lot of times we just think about, let's get done with it, W-2, get out of it, and then everything will be great. Well, you have to have something. And so thinking about that ahead of time makes sense. His strategy of consolidating small apartment complex and then selling them to a larger syndicator as a package, I think that's brilliant because I always have felt like some of those smaller apartments, it's an in-between, right? The single person owner can't really handle them that large and the large syndicator doesn't want them that small. But if you can buy a few, manage them as one and package them up and sell them, I just think that's a brilliant strategy and I'm sure that's going to be working for him. The way I was first met Derek was this email thing that I'm going to put it in the show notes, but this webinar, and it's really helped me a lot to organize my email inbox. And so I recommend that you watch this webinar and just get a couple of tips. I didn't do everything. He's way too organized for me. I didn't include my calendar because I am not that organized, but I took the first step. I'm starting to sort my email inbox. It took a little bit to figure it out, but once I did, it was super easy and I'm adding new functionality every day. And so I just feel like I'm a little bit more on top of emails and that is super helpful. So really interesting guy traveling around the world on Airbnb. That sounds fantastic. Really enjoyed this conversation. I'm going to keep track of Derek and follow him and see what he's up to next because he's a really interesting guy. So that's all we have for today in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, 
consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.